This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. One of the things that was really hard was like, well, describe this river. What class is it? What kind of rapids are on it? There was no international classification of rapids. So American Whitewater and other groups came together and developed the international classification of whitewater that we still use today. That's that one to six scale. And obviously, I mean, the sports evolved quite a bit since then. So, you know, what was considered a class five rapid in early 1960s is something else today. But the scale is still, still very much used, still very useful. And, you know, it's uh, one of the enduring products of a early American whitewater effort going back to the mid 50s. This episode comes to you from the history and future of one of the oldest whitewater clubs in the United States, that club being American Whitewater. Established in 1954, American Whitewater became the club of clubs and today is the hub of about 80 affiliate river clubs across the country that collectively represent about 80,000 whitewater paddlers and river runners. American Whitewater is a river access and river conservation organization with about 7,000 due-paying members nationwide. American Whitewater hosts whitewater festivals, hosts a river database, and engages with regional, state, tribal, and federal policymakers to keep rivers wet and to keep those rivers accessible for river runners. Last summer, in 2022, American Whitewater's executive director of the past 18 years, Mark Singleton, transmitted his leadership role, and American Whitewater brought into their fold a new executive director, Clinton Begley. I met in person with each of these leaders to learn about American Whitewater, our rivers in this country, and how American Whitewater will continue widening access to rivers for all of us. First, we traveled to the headquarters of American Whitewater in the small mountain town of Silva, North Carolina, where I met with Mark Singleton. We begin with Mark telling us his name and introducing himself. Please meet Mark Singleton. I'm Mark Singleton. I am the former executive director of American Whitewater. Um, I live in western North Carolina, about 45 minutes outside of Asheville, at the base of uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, Blue Ridge Parkway, Great Smokies, and a bunch of good rivers, Nantahala, Takasegee, Pigeon, French Broad, Chattooga. They all kind of originate and flow out of the region that I live in. Can you tell me... Can you tell me about your relationship with rivers? Yeah, so um, it's hard to talk about my relationship with rivers without talking about, you know, where they fit in in my life. And I've always been around the water. I was born in Micronesia. My first memory of being in a kayak was with my dad um, on Truck Lagoon, which is the island that I was born on, uh, Chuk. Um, and... Uh, paddling around in a full boat that that, uh, that he had at the time. And most folks don't recognize full boats today, but they're kind of a, a wood structure that has a canvas skin that creates a, a packable, foldable kayak. You know, my, my memory of being in the, in, in the full boat with my dad was watching hammerhead sharks swim around underneath us. And then, you know, later on, we moved from Micronesia. I lived in Hawaii for a while and, um, um, my parents were uh, members of the local Y. Uh, part of that was an old Hawaiian surf club, canoe club. And so I would go out with, uh, with, you know, with the old Hawaiian guys and paddle outrigger. And they always liked to have like small kids along because, you know, we, we would 
dive for the Baylors and get the Baylors when whenever these outriggers would capsize. So that was another kind of intersection for me around water. And then my dad took a job working at the University of Pittsburgh. We ended up moving from Honolulu to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was a total bummer for me. I mean, I was not happy about that. Um, my parents realized it right away. So got me involved in things that were outside and, you know, around around Pittsburgh. And one of them was the opportunity to paddle and uh, kayak in, in rivers in, in Ohio Pile and the Yawk. So I started working as a river guide there on the Yawk and paddling uh, kayak. And river guiding for me was just a way to stay in my kayak for a summer. You know, I've been around water really my whole life and continue to be. So somehow I just seemed to get drawn into it. Jack's Plastic Welding is sponsoring today's episode. Jack's Plastic has several boats on significant discount. These are boats with small blemishes, and all of these discounted boats carry a full warranty from Jack's Plastic. They have whitewater cat tubes, expedition cat tubes, and a small raft for one person that can get down about 200 CFS. Prices do not include shipping. There's a link in today's show notes taking you directly to these boats. You can also click on Discounted on their homepage and see the boats. Jack's Plastic Welding is where I have gotten my cat tubes, my dry bags, and my Paco pads for the past 15 years. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. That is www.jpwinc.com. Tell them the River Radius sent you. You worked at AW for 18 years, and there's a lot of questions with that. I'd like to start and just hear from you what you how you perceive American whitewater, what, what American whitewater is and what American whitewater does. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, American whitewater is an advocacy organization that's supported by membership that advocates on the behalf of the interest of um, whitewater paddlers for conservation and access to rivers that are important to that community. And they're basically three pillars in the work that AW does. So conservation is one of them. Access is certainly another one, and then safety education and outreach is a third. And all of those things kind of wrap up into what we like to refer to as stewardship. And each one of those things, you can think of them as legs on a stool. Each one of them supports the stool. You know, and if one of those legs is weak, well, then the stool's going to be wobbly. And um, conservation, access, and safety all fit together really well because you know, for, for conservation to work, for, for folks to want to be able to protect a place, it's important that they get to know it. You can't love something that you don't know. And for conservation to work, people need access to rivers. People need to be exposed to them. They need to be able to understand, you know, their various moods. Uh, and then byproduct of that is they want to protect it. I mean, certainly that was my journey. I mean, I paddled a lot of different places. I saw a lot of different things start to change, and that got me into more of a conservation mindset. I think it's fair to say my 20s were pretty much, hell yeah, let's go boating. And, uh, you know, after maturing a little bit more beyond that, there was an interest in saying, wait a minute, these things are changing too fast. Something's going on here, and... and, uh, we got a voice, we need to use it, we need to protect it. And then 
safety and behavior on the water fits in with, with both access and conservation because oftentimes people that look at paddlers or look at people using rivers think, well, it's just, they're just a bunch of yahoos and want to show that there's appropriate ways to behave on these resources that um, respect them, respect local communities, and, um, you know, use best practices and solid judgment to keep people, you know, in situations that are within their ability levels and comfort zones. And, and when did AW begin? Yeah, so there's a long history to American Whitewater. It was founded back in the mid-50s, 1955, in Salida, Colorado, actually at a FIBARC event. And FIBARC in those days was, you know, the premier whitewater event in the United States and even attracted a lot of Europeans coming over to the States to, to compete. And there was a real need at that point in the development of paddle sports to bring together the various clubs that were doing um, paddle sports activities and create a national network that um, supported the individual whitewater clubs and shared information. So, you know, obviously 1950s, prior to the internet, prior to, um, you know, easy desktop publishing, but American Whitewater then started publishing a, a, a whitewater journal. So our, our AW journal goes back to the mid-50s and has been published continuously since then. Um, shortly after AW came together, the, the need was recognized that there should be some consolidation of safety information. And one of the things that was really hard was like, well, describe this river. What class is it? What kind of rapids are on it? There was no international classification of rapids. So... American Whitewater and other groups came together and developed the international classification of whitewater that we still use today. That's that one to six scale. And obviously, I mean, the sports evolved quite a bit since then. So, you know, it was considered a, you know, a class five rapid in, you know, early 1960s is something else today. But um, the scale is still, still very much used, still very useful. And, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the enduring products of an early American whitewater effort going back to the mid-50s. Then the other thing that was going on is there were no real guidebooks, right? I mean, the, the way you get information about rivers was, you, you know, you, you, you talked to somebody that had either been down it or you looked at a map. And, uh, I mean, I'm probably the last executive director at American Whitewater that had the opportunity to talk to some of the original founders most of them have passed away now. Um, but the stories that they had were just epic. Show up at the at Deer Park on the Yampa, not knowing what's downstream, staying at a ranch house with a local rancher farmer, putting on the river with your wife and an army surplus raft, and going, yeah, pick us up in Vernal in a week. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, no idea what's down there. Just, you know, just going. Um, so... You know, this idea of exploration and sharing the knowledge about wild rivers was certainly something that was core to uh, American Whitewater's DNA early on and um, has led to products that are important to AW today, like 
our online database of rivers, the online gauges, the river descriptions, being able to share those information, that information about rivers um, is something that I know our community uses a lot. I mean, we see it in terms of the kind of traffic we have on the website. And of course, websites are easy to track, but the, you know, the journal is also another communication tool that's been really important to the organization. So over time, you know, AW has grown, matured. Sometimes focuses have shifted a bit. Um, in the 60s, the, 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 the real focus of the organization was sharing information, but then also becoming involved in um, campaigns to push back against big dams in the West. So... If you go back and you take a look at some of the journals in the early 60s, there are these goodbye letters to Glen Canyon that are really powerful because it's folks that had experiences in Glen Canyon that are now saying goodbye to it because dams are going in and, you know, rivers rivers are being managed as impoundments for, for future growth in the Southwest. Um, and then that led to the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill that, that, that came together and um, American Whitewater members were active voices and uh, supporting wild and scenic legislation and then subsequently wild and scenic designation for specific rivers. What's the, what's the membership today of, of AW? The membership today is right around 6,000. Huh, it's 6,000. I guess I thought it was more. Well, one of the things that's challenging is to, to measure... Um, strictly by dues-paying members, yeah, right. right? We serve a much larger community than mm-hmm. the 6,000 dues-paying members, all right? So that's a person that has taken it upon themselves to pay $20, $30, 40 $50 a year to say I'm a member, they get the magazine. That's correct. But there's a lot, probably 10 times that, that access your data. Yeah, even more than 10 even times even that. More, right. You know, when you when you really kind of build out, if you, I think of membership as this pyramid, right? Mm-hmm. And at the base of the pyramid are all the folks that are involved in our network somehow. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're a dues-paying member. But, you know, they follow us on Facebook or, they, you know, they, they get our Instagram feed. And then that builds up. We have folks that engage with us at, at some level, either filing comments or writing a letter in support of an initiative. And those people, you know, number in the tens of thousands. And then we have dues-paying members, you know, which is, is a little smaller subset. And then we have major donors and contributors. And then, you know, the top of the pyramid is kind of like our our key super volunteers. Many of those are board members. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel like there's like definition to the different phases of the life of AW, like some different eras of it? It's a small organization in 52. It grows and we're at 2022 20, today. What's that? 70? 70 years of American Whitewater. Yeah. Yeah. How would you define those eras of that, of, of, of AW? Yeah. There are definite eras that the organization has gone through in in terms of its development, going back to the, to the fifties and the early sixties. I mean, it was, it was the network of clubs into the late sixties and seventies. AW was really focused on turning out the journal you know, it was the magazine that kind of held the organization together. It was where it, people could share information that way. Then an interesting thing really happened in the 80s that kind of defined what the modern 
AW is. And that was engagement in, um, in hydro relicensing. In the mid-80s, um, a group of paddlers, primarily from the Northeast, actually, uh, came together and said, you know, we've, we've got an opportunity here to build some language into the Federal Power Act that would allow for consideration of downstream water coming out of hydro projects that are owned by publicly traded utilities. The Gali was really kind of the, one, of the, one of the first test cases for this. So Gali Fest started as a celebration to gather the community around the success of fighting a flume that would have been built from the dam to the bottom of Pillow Rock. So basically put in, would it be a penstock? Put in a penstock, have the water go to the bottom of Pillow Rock, dewater the upper section of the gully, and then have a, a hydro unit down there below Pillow Rock and produce energy. A group called Citizens for Gully River was formed. It was uh, run by a guy by the name of David Brown, who later became the executive director of America Outdoors, which is the trade organization for outfitters. But David was instrumental in kind of creating this grassroots campaign to essentially save the upper Gali from this penstock and hydro development. And uh, in 1984, the first Gali Fest was held, and it was to celebrate the success of pushing back against this proposal for the dewatering of the upper Gali, protecting the upper Gali. What that showed this group of, of, of paddlers in the Northeast is that there was this possibility to bring public comment into the federal uh, energy relicensing process that has to go through for uh, dams that, that need licenses from the federal government to operate, which is dams that are owned by um, utilities that, that produce electricity. They kind of ran with this notion and were, were able to uh, insert some language in the the Federal Power Act that came out a few years later for equal consideration of upstream and downstream use. So lake levels had consideration, bring property owners around hydro um, dams that uh, wanted to protect their property interests as lakefront and then downstream users for both recreation and habitat. And that then triggered a bunch of releases that American Whitewater was able to gain on on rivers throughout the Northeast, the Moose, the Racket, Bear, the Gali, and then later coming down to the Southeast on the Tallulah in the early 90s. That really kind of showed the way for how the organization could engage in this process to advocate for, for downstream water and really changed the shape of American whitewater in terms of it wasn't just information sharing anymore. It was active involvement in stewardship activities for water that was downstream coming out of hydro projects. And so today you see classic success stories of rivers that have been rewatered because we participated in the hydro relicensing process. Just 40 miles from here, the Chioa River used to run dry, and now it has scheduled releases. Um, Nanahela, Takasiji, uh, rivers that are here in this area that have scheduled releases on them, outcomes of a federal energy relicensing process that uh, supported downstream use as well as working to secure the interests of lakeshore owners upstream. 
And it's just a matter of balancing those uses and finding out what's what the right balance is for the various interests that are around the table. Habitat's certainly a big one. You just uh, you just listed off a handful of rivers that are here in Appalachia. That work though is not exclusive. That, oh, that not release at all. guarantee work is not exclusive. Where, where else have you? Has well, California is a big one. You know, the, the Feather River, you know, just outside of uh, Chico, is a you know a huge success story for us in terms of relicensing. We've been able to remove dams as a as a as part of this as well. Um, and you know, this work continues around the country. You know, I'd look at rivers in the Northeast, rivers on the West Coast. You know, they, they've all been impacted. Thinking about having AW as a tool for so many boaters, this tool being the work that you do for to guarantee releases, in your perception, where would whitewater boating in this country be without the work that AW has done, you know, let's just say for the 70 years? Well, you know, I, I, I have to think that if AW didn't do it, somebody else would. You create a vacuum, something's going to come in there to fill it, right? Something else would have come in and, and, and filled that vacuum. What that something else is would be a bit hard to define, and it's probably a spectrum. I mean, one thing that could have happened is that utilities could come in and say, hey, you know, we don't want this public input. You know, we don't want organizations like AW showing up when we're trying to get our operating licenses that are good for 30 to 50 years and telling the utility what they want downstream. Not every country has a system like this, right? Most countries don't. And as a result, if there's a, a dam project, public comment isn't really considered, right? So that, that could have been one way that it goes. The other way that it could have gone is another organization could have come in, filled, filled this niche, or a couple other organizations could have. But, you know, the important thing is that public has a voice you know our community of, of folks that like being around rivers we've got you know we've got voice we've got leverage and the really cool thing is that our community engages you know when we send out an action alert and we're letting individuals whether they're members or just members of our community know that there's an issue that impacts them they respond they you know they send their elected representative an email. They send the letter. Um, they engage. They provide comment. I mean, that is so critical and so important. And it's really kind of the um, the magic sauce to this mix that that allows us to do the things that we can do. So, twelve people work at, at American Whitewater. I'm, I've I've been able to uh, meet a number of them, get to know them, and uh, I think they're all boaters. Um, and boaters seem to have a bit of a, um, probably a little bit of a, of a dirt bag, a, a semblance to their life and also a definite desire to go paddling and paddling doesn't really always follow the nine to five year round schedule. There's seasons to it. And these are the kinds of people who are going to want to take off and go on long river trips. How, how have you navigated that management of a collection of humans who want to play hard and know they have to work hard. How have you managed that, that characteristic set of a bunch of river runners doing really hard work, stressful work, letting them have free time, getting them to grind out the work? 
Yeah. What's your, what's the, what did you, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I could answer it. I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I think that there's, you know, there, there's a certain, there's a certain attraction to this work, a certain subset of boaters that, you know, are really interested in rivers and committed to rivers. I've been just remarkably fortunate in the staff that's kind of come together around AW. You know, they're all incredible people on a personal level and incredibly talented and wicked smart. It wasn't that I was able to reach out and find them. I, I couldn't pick any one of them out of a crowd. But they found AW and they found me and they had all had a lot to offer and i was able to find positions in the organization where they could plug in and make it work and you know it's just again it's just it's worked way better than i ever could have hoped for but i think there are a couple of things that help to make it work one is our staff have an incredible amount of autonomy I don't tell them what to do. You know, I mean, there's some things that need to happen. There's some deadlines that come up that you have to meet. But in terms of how to, how to meet them or, or, you know, what to put on the table, no. You know, each one of them know their regions. Each one of them know their subject areas better than I do. And I'm happy to work with them to figure out what's, what's appropriate. But ultimately, I lean, lean on them. So there's, there's an incredible amount of autonomy to, 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 to figure this stuff out. Right. And I think that for that type of personality that you just, just, just described, being able to have that autonomy and figure it out, it's very valuable. Then the other thing that kind of goes with that, and it comes with time, is that there's a mastery to a skill set. And, you know, our staff, it's, it's incredible how many collective years of experience there is within that 12-person group. There's 140 years of collective AW experience working on AW projects. 140. That's about 11 years per staff person. A few of them have worked with me since I started. So 18 years, you know, and continue to work with AW, which is fantastic. Um, The other thing that really helps is we share a lot of information. You know, what happens in, in, in one region can be shared with another, takeaways, lessons learned. We try and, and, and really just create this open network so that staff aren't having to consistently reinvent the wheel when something comes up. You know, I, I've, in my role, what I've tried to do is, is really support them as best I can, make sure that they have the resources that they need so that they can be successful undertaking the various projects that, that they've got on their plate. Well, my last question for you is that in the American Whitewater Journal, you know, the ED would have the kind of in the very first page or two, you would have a writing that you would give out to the, to the magazine readers. And you would sign off and you would say, take care of rivers and your paddling will take care of you. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, I wish I could totally claim that it was original to me, but it's a, it's a, it's a metamorphosis of the surfer's creed. 
to be a waterman, and to be a waterman specifically in the, in the Pacific Islands, was more than just being a surfer. It was being involved in the culture of the islands. It was being involved in the stewardship of the ocean. And it was being an ocean athlete, whether it was surfing or paddling outrigger, right? And so the surfer's creed is take care of your oceans and your surfing will take care of you. And it's uh, bringing that waterman notion to the paddling community that you're going to be a waterman. Yeah, you're a kayaker. That's great. Or you paddle open boat or you, you paddle stand up or whatever you paddle. But you're more than that. You're not defined by what you paddle. You're defined by your connection to the river. You're by, defined by your connection to river culture. And that's what makes you part of this community. So that's what that sign-off was all about. Well, Mark Singleton, thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast. Yes, yeah, Sam, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Jack's Plastic Welding has been hand-building boats, Paco pads, and dry bags in the United States since last century. Jack's Plastic Welding has several boats on extra-large discount. These are boats with small blemishes, and all of these discounted boats carry a full warranty from Jack's Plastic. They have whitewater cat tubes, expedition cat tubes, and a small raft for one person that can get down about 200 CFS. Prices do not include shipping. There is a link in today's show notes taking you directly to these boats. You can also click on Discounted on their homepage and see the boats there. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. jpwinc.com. Tell them the River Radius sent you. The metamorphosis for American Whitewater from the leadership of Mark Singleton to their new leadership is underway. Clinton Begley initiated his tenure as executive director in the summer of 2022. I talked and walked with Clinton at Gollyfest in West Virginia last fall. Gollyfest is the largest whitewater festival put on by American Whitewater. We met early on a day of the festival and walked around the festival grounds discussing Clinton's river relationship and some of his vision for his work with American Whitewater. So let's start off with, uh, tell me your name. So my name is Clinton Begley. And Clinton, what is your new job title? I am the executive director for American Whitewater. You know, let's just set the scene. Tell us, tell us where we are, what's going on, and why we're here. Yeah, so we're here at the site of Golly Fest 2022. This is the 39th year uh, of Golly Fest. We're here on a beautiful, humid day, sunny day in West Virginia, in Summersville, and uh, we're walking around. There's, uh, we're in the vendor booth area. It's pretty light. Uh, attendance right now because everybody's out on the river and but folks are setting up looking forward to tonight and this weekend so you uh, how long have you had the job so I've been in the job for seven weeks okay American Whitewater seems to have their headquarters on the East Coast um, and but you're living on the West Coast where do you live so I currently live um, on the Mackenzie River just outside Eugene Oregon uh-huh and how does that work for AW does it matter that you live there? I think one of the really brilliant things that Mark Singleton did um, about 18 years ago when he took over was to understand the value of having people living in the place where they're working and where they're prioritizing and that 
um, you know, having staff all in one location, whether it's DC or Silva, North Carolina, um, comes with a cost. And that's, you know, the cost is you don't have all those relationships uh, on the ground. So Mark really did the regional director model, put that in place. And um, I think more and more, even today, people are still kind of catching on to the fact that people need to be in place where they're working to, um, to really have impact. But Mark saw that 18 years ago um, or so. And so, no, we don't have to be all in one place. And in fact, there's a real benefit to having folks distributed around the country uh, to, to be able to know what's happening on the ground, know what's a priority, um, and to be able to do what I think what American Whitewater does best is to get the people who are there and are being impacted by whatever's going on to be involved. And you can't do that from a single office, either in Silver or DC. Have you met the full staff? at AW? I have. I've okay. met everyone in pieces, <laughs> but uh, officially we've all met, yes. Yeah. One of the, I will say, one of the great things also about us being all over the country is that you get to learn things in the, in the same way that like states are the incubators, the laboratories of democracy. You can learn things in some regions that might be really place specific, um, but that have some sort of lateral applicability in another region. And so you do get to figure some things out and because of the regional differences people become pretty specialized in how to navigate that space and then can teach others what they've learned there and I think that's another real value to having folks spread out a little bit. So why why did you let's start with this one why did you want the job? <laughs> so I've been a member of American Whitewater basically since the first month or two that I started paddling in about 2004 and I came to AW via the website and at the time there was, um, they were just getting the National Whitewater Database going. And I was living in the Midwest, I just started paddling, uh, didn't know anybody except for me and my misfit friends that were paddlers and wanted to figure out where I could go. And so I got on whatever, like Ask Jeeves or Alta Vista at the time and found the AW website and noticed there was kind of a big gap for where I was living. So I shot off an email to a guy named Matt Muir um, and he set me up as a stream keeper for the states of Missouri and Illinois uh, to, which gave me this drive to actually go out and find new places to paddle, figure out what would make a good put in and take out location and then update the website uh, reaches. And so that was really my first entry was um, this really cool vehicle to uh, paddle and capture data and share that. And so that was about 2004 and I've been involved with American Whitewater uh, in some capacity as a volunteer and member ever since. And so when I saw the, um, you know, that Mark was resigning and they were looking for a new executive director, um, I said, you know, I can't wait another 18 years for my dream job. Huh. This is an organization that I've had a passion for for two decades, the entirety of my paddling career, and I'll call it a success if I get an interview. And uh, I got that first interview and uh, then another one and another one. <laughs> so here we are. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted the job. Um, because I, I care about this organization, I care about rivers, I care about what rivers have done for me in my life. Um, I have what I would call a relationship with, with some rivers, that you know, parts of my family in some ways, and um, so it's really core for me. And I was working as an executive director for a conservation organization in Oregon, and I felt like maybe I would have a few skills that would transfer. So, you know, standing here by moving water, I'm curious about your kind of your relationship with rivers? Yeah, I continue to own a family farm uh, in Missouri, which is on a has a tributary to the Mississippi called North River that runs through it. And uh, my grandfather purchased it in, I think, 52. 
and it's still in the family. My father and I own it. And um, some of my first memories are skipping rocks on North River. And the first thing we would do, we'd hit, you know, we lived in town, but we would come out and we'd hit the gate and close it behind us. And the river was all the way at the back of the property, but we'd drive straight to it first and see what the level was. So I've been checking river levels since I, before I even knew what paddling was. Um, just to see what the river had been doing, if logs moved, if the sandbar changed. Yeah. Um, and so, honestly, growing up in a river community alongside the banks of the Mississippi and having a farm uh, that, you know, is on a, on a tributary, uh, it's just part of my life. And part of my blood is, is North River. You know, American Whitewater, I think it has this vibe, and I've actually talked to some of the people at American Whitewater in the past about this. There's this, there's this kind of expression, this modern expression that it's, it's about whitewater mm. and it's about booths and I don't know what other terms to throw in there because I'm not really a kayaker. <laughs> shrig. I think the kids are saying shrig now. Okay, shrig. I hope that's right. Uh, it doesn't mean something <laughs> weird. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like it has that connotation that it's of that, uh, that, it's th that that's the value set is whitewater and access to whitewater. That's what this, this, this fest is about, is about kind of cele celebrating that. But I'm listening to you talk. And I hear you talk about probably a flat water river meandering mm. through the Great Plains, heading down to the Mississippi, in uh, yeah, in the in the middle Midwest. That's not white water. What what do you feel like is the deeper kind of commitment that AW has? to to the river sets of this of this content of this country not this whole continent but this of this country um and how it bounces navigates vacillates between that white water protection and asset uh, access and the boofing and then the skipping rocks and the quaint quiet meandering rivers of, of the flat country i think that's an awesome question i think it's an open question too. I don't think that that's, that there's unanimity about the answer to that. I think a lot of the conversations that I've had even before I was hired was about the evolving role and identity of American whitewater and that it holds multiple identities. I mean, you know, the origins of as being sort of the paddling club of paddling clubs, um, certainly going back to 54, uh, and then sort of what started in the beaver uh, and the moose area in New York um, maybe in the 90s in starting to look at, hey, how could kayakers and the recreation interests um, start to affect change in how rivers are managed and um, have a conservation role? And then how do we use the tools of cons conservation uh, in the Clean Water Act and in a broad coalition of partners, you know, hook and bullet partners, Trout Unlimited, for example, um, backcountry hunters and anglers, how do we have common interests? And I think it's a really interesting evolution that's part of really a complex theory of change about access and about um, and about connection to place. I don't know of, maybe with some exceptions, I don't know of any kayakers who started out on class five. And so what is the opportunity to develop an affinity for water-based recreation or, or experiencing water directly um, that has a lower barrier of entry for people of all ages, all abilities, um, people who maybe, you know, um, aren't native born Americans. Um, it's hard to know um, exactly what those different entry points are. And there are some, but not most rivers in the United States don't go straight from source to sea as a whitewater river. There are complex systems and people and species move throughout them 
uh, in ways that make sense to look at the whole system as part of our effort. Trying to bite off just the, the parts with the highest gradient leaves a lot off the table and also, quite frankly, takes a lot of tools out of our hands. I think you can tell a lot about an organization by how it spends its money. And if you look at the budget for the last several fiscal years of the American Whitewater, we're spending a lot of money on hydropower relicensing, wild and scenic designation, um, different legislative actions that are at landscape scale, um, certainly access as a component of that. And so that's clearly what this organization values and it looks a lot like a conservation organization. It's less like the club of clubs that it perhaps was in 1954. That doesn't mean it can't also be both. It's recognizing that there's a complexity of the human experience on the landscape and how do we fit in a way that represents not only paddlers, but also the resource that paddlers are accessing and how can there be reciprocity in how we're giving back to the resource that gives so much to us. So, you know, AW works on access and I'm curious about what AW has been doing and maybe more, more appropriately for you as a new ED, how you see AW engaging around access to rivers for people who are not middle-class white Americans. Cause that's, I mean, you know, when I, that's probably me. That's probably most of the people here at this festival. When I go to boat ramps and, and I'm on rivers and I see people who have permits at boat shops, etc. that's kind of the, who I see. It's changing. I'd like to see it continue to change. I'm curious. I'm curious what you, what your thoughts are around all that. It's a great question. I think, it would be tempting for me to throw out some ideas about how and what that might look like. I think there's some fundamental questions that about why, and I have a really strong sense of why, but if anything that we're going to advance to try and support those aims is going to thrive and be sustained, it has to be grounded for everybody. And that's staff, that's board, that's key partners. And I think focusing on why is it important to create opportunity to invite, to uh, address what barriers exist for everybody, the all hands on deck to care and have a connection with these places, I think we have to really understand why uh, we're going to do that first. And so, um, you know, stay tuned on what it looks like. I think it's going to involve a lot of conversation. And quite frankly, we have to ask the people uh, that we want to better serve what they need from us. And so I think it would also be a little presumptive for me to mm. say, right now, here's what's needed and here we are to the rescue. Um, I think there's an opportunity to support the leadership of others who already have an interest in this space. I've been really impressed what Diversify Whitewater has been doing and I would love to see how we could, uh, again, support their leadership and learn from them and their experiences on how we could br bring our unique talents or our unique capacity to the table in that mission rather than to try and um, you know, divine it ourselves. This is another topic where the answers can be cliched. Do you have, do you have fears and confidence mm. that you and AW can navigate beyond your answers around access for all people being cliched because nothing really happens? Do you have confidence and, and, and fear both kind of woven together as you navigate this that you can that you can address this with your with your, your peers at AW. I'm actually really glad that you use the word fear in your question. I think um, where I have seen really well intentioned efforts to diversify the table 
uh, so to speak, of you know, who's at the table and who's a part of the conversation. Um, moving it beyond the table into action on the ground gets stopped by fear a lot. And I think people are afraid to say the wrong thing and maybe it's not quite um, you know, using the parlance of the day and they're gonna get you know, skewered <laughs> from one side or it's too much change too fast and are you gonna lose folks who've um, you know, maybe aren't learning at the same rate um, you know, as, as the culture is progressing. And I think fear of failure, fear of getting it wrong, fear, fear of being called a racist, fear uh, of being called woke, I think gets in the way of really meaningful things that can affect people's lives today. And I think that idea of fear and really just calling it out for what it is, which is another barrier to uh, actually making change, I think that's really important. And so the reality is I'd be a fool not to be a little bit of afraid, a little bit afraid. I think it's part of the conversation and I think it's part of doing meaningful work. If you're really confident that, gosh darn it, I can make change in this space and just follow me, I'd be a fool. I mean, it's not the way the world works. And I think being really thoughtful, cognizant of our fears and how our fears get in the way of um, our ability to take risks and to uh, invite people into a space to share power to um, maybe step back and not be the loudest voice in the room about how we're going to do this. I think um, I think that's really important. I think on the other side of your question is confidence and you know I talked earlier about you know not wanting to get ahead of the what and the how uh, but really focusing on the why and I think what I'm co most confident about is, as I'm starting to learn my team, is that I see a really, in, really genuine intellectual curiosity, but also an emotional curiosity of how do we make sense of this? And I think that curiosity and that care and the um, dedication to try to tackle the question in spite of those fears gives me a lot of confidence that whatever comes next, we're going to try to do it as best we can. I think one of the traps that folks fall into when trying to do equity work or trying to have conversations about diversity is to really get fixated on what is the final result. What's also important is how you do it. And there are ways that one might approach uh, equity or diversity in whitewater or in river experiences that aren't necessarily acknowledging the ways in which the systems that we all operate in have already gotten in the way. So another way to say that is, you know, the system is perfectly designed for the outcomes it produces, which means if what we're getting are real barriers to people accessing these places, being a part participant in decision making, bringing their voices to the table to protect these places, if we have those barriers in place in the current system, we can't keep using that system. We have to change the system in order to uh, have a different result. And so I think not only in just targeting, here's what we want it to look like, here's what we want the outcome to be, but really addressing, how do we talk about this? It's not part of our existing system to just call out fears <laughs> when trying to do work uh, on policy or on uh, you know, river access. Social fears are gonna have to be part of the conversation. And I think there's a vulnerability in how we approach this that has been missing. And so changing the way in which we show up to even ask and answer questions is part of the work. And uh, it's part of what we have to focus on if we're going to actually make change in this space. I think, I think we have 270 yards left before we got to stop, <laughs> press pause. Um, any last words? Any last thoughts? Something I like to tell uh, new paddlers is 
kind of a trick question. It's like, do you all do you know what the last move of any rapid is? Every rapid has the same last move. It's to turn around and look behind you. Make sure that everybody else behind you is doing okay. And I think that's a big part of where we are as an organization. Uh, we've been out in front leading. There's a lot of amazing work and accomplishments. And I think we're at a time of reflection too, to make sense of where we are. Where are we now? We're a staff of 12 working the whole country. Let's take some time and look behind us, see what we've learned uh, and use that as a springboard to look forward. And that's something that I'm really excited about. Awesome. Clinton Begley, thanks. Thanks, Sam. This was really fun. Yeah, right on. Good luck. An accessible Riverside thank you goes out to today's guests, Mark Singleton and Clinton Begley, and American Whitewater. Today's advertising sponsor is Jack's Plastic Welding. You can find web and Instagram links to Jack's Plastic in the show notes. In today's show notes, you can also find links to American Whitewater, their membership portal, their list of affiliate clubs, their website and river database, and their Instagram and Facebook. Here at the River Radius, our social media expert is Samantha Seiss. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Oftentimes, people that look at paddlers or look at people using rivers think, well, it's just, they're just a bunch of yahoos. I also have a tendency to like speed up talking when I get really excited about something and you're asking me things that I'm really interested in. So, Putting on the river with your wife and an army surplus raft and going, yeah, pick us up in Vernal in a week. I'm going to pause for a second, but I, I have more to say. Something's going on here. And, and, uh, and today I'm Clinton. Pretty much, hell yeah, let's go boating. <laughs>